0: to do is we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians and he read a particular text to you that you're going to find on your notes. So if you have your notes just grab them, pull them out, grab your pens because what we're going to do is we're going to introduce ourselves to it and we're going to get acquainted with it and we're going to draw some thoughts from it as we kick off this series, gospel life. Now, you remember what we saw is we saw you have Peter and you have Barnabas and you have all of these great Christian leaders. And in this story, they're being confronted by Paul about what it means to live in accordance with the gospel. Why? Because one of the things that we have to get as the church right from the beginning is that this thing that we call the gospel or the good news, it is the essential core of Christianity. In fact, I would say it this way. It is the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. Now, here's what I mean. There are a lot of things that are true of Christians. There are a lot of things that you probably could say about Christians, or at least they should be true. For example, a Christian should be a good person or is a good person. A Christian is a loving person or should be a loving person, and that might be true, but that's not the gospel. What do I mean? Well, let's say that you came up to me or somebody came up to you and they said, they came up to me and they said, you're a surgeon. What do surgeons do? And I looked at them and I said, well, surgeons, they wear green shirts. Well, you guys understand that's true, isn't it? But that doesn't at all tell you what a surgeon is, does it? No, because that's not the core. That's not the essence of what a surgeon is because you know and i know there are a lot of other people that wear green shirts is that right i see jack susan's husband wearing a green shirt today not to point you out but there he is right there what i'm trying to say to you is this the gospel is the thing that makes christianity christianity in fact if i could put it to you this way if if you were to look at a bicycle wheel or a tire or a bicycle spoke the hub Of that spoke is the gospel and there's a lot of things that emanate from the gospel of course being loving or faithful or kind or truthful all of those things emanate but that's not what makes christianity now of course the moment you act out of harmony with the gospel you actually can no longer have christianity now you might have something that looks loving you might have something that's humble but it's not christianity And so here, you guys understand, when I say it's the essential core, what you've got to understand is here we have Paul. He's coming in, and he's arguing with Peter, who is another apostle. He's another person who wrote part of the New Testament, and he's arguing with all of the leaders as to how the gospel has to be worked out and what it means to live a gospel life. And it's pretty important, as you can see what the gospel is, and how it's lived out. So that's what we're going to deal with over the next five weeks. And what I want to do today is I want to introduce the series, but I want to start first with understanding what that essential core is. What is this thing called the gospel? And then we're going to begin to talk about over the next five weeks how it's lived out or how it works its way out of our life. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Here's some principles of the gospel. Let's get straight first. Number one, write this down. The gospel the Bible teaches is the way that you and I get righteousness. Write that down. The gospel is the way that we get righteousness. Now, let me say this, because this is pretty important. In fact, if you go to verse 21, look at how Paul puts it when he's writing to the Galatians. Because, see, they've misunderstood the gospel, and he wants to make sure they're straight about it. So what does he say? He says, let's read it together. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And the key phrase, by the way, there, you might underline it, if righteousness could be gained, because he's talking about the desire to gain what? Come on, righteousness. And he says, the gospel is the way that you get this. Now, I realize I'm talking to modern people, so I use the word righteousness, and some of you are like, okay, well, you lost me right there, because righteousness, I mean, what is that? Righteousness is just some theological term. Some of you are looking at me going, that's just an old musty term. It's not relevant. You say, I don't even need to know about that. And I'm going to say to you right now, oh, yes, it is. It is relevant. It is relevant to every person. In fact, I'm going to take that a little farther. I'm going to challenge you with this thought. Everybody in the world is struggling to get righteousness. Everybody wants it. It's not old-fashioned. It's not obsolete. Listen, today you're seated here, and you're after righteousness. Why? Let me ask you this. Why can't some of you look in the mirror? Why are some of you driven to work so hard, and you're working like crazy? Why do you keep yourself busy all the time? Why are you trying to fit in with certain groups of people? What's going on there? I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on. That's an internal struggle for what the Bible calls righteousness. Now, the reason why we don't make this connection as North Americans is because in our culture, when we hear the word righteousness, what do we tend to think of? We tend to think of moral goodness. If I say you're righteous, what you think is, oh, well, you're a goody-goody. And somebody says, you're a righteous person, and usually you're like, oh, I'm not that righteous, you know. I'm a little, you know, not goody, you know. I do something. And you almost take pride in that because when you say righteousness, you think, well, that means moral goodness. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's not really what it means at all. No. In the Bible, righteousness actually has to do with relationship. It means to be righteous in the Bible means that you're right in relationship to someone or to something. Now, I'll just give you an example. Think of it like this. If you're paying your bills then you're probably in right relationship with PG&E. Is that right? Right? If you're paying your bills. Now, you understand, we're not talking about moral goodness at all, are we? No. If you pay your bills, you're right with Pacific Gas and Electric. And guess what? You're going to get what? Electricity and gas. But if you don't pay your bills, you're not right with PG&E. And what's going to happen? Power gets turned off. You're not going to get electricity. You get the idea. Now, here's the point. Listen to me. Everybody is born into the world knowing that they're not right relationally with God. This goes back as far as time. This is why David, as a prophet, could say, Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity. And he says, You know, my sin, it's always before me. In fact, he says, I was sinful at birth. He says, From the time my mother conceived me, I've been in sin. See, he knows that there is a problem. Why? We all know we're not acceptable. We all know that we're not valuable. We all know that we're not lovable. And so what do people do in this life? People are trying to find a way to scramble to make themselves better. And they're looking for validation. And usually we're looking for it from other people. Why? It's a sense of righteousness. I want to be right. And people are working to make themselves better. There is a, think about it. There is a drivenness to fit in. There is a drivenness to look okay to your peers. There is a drivenness to get A's. There is a drivenness to be beautiful. What is that? You can see it. It's the struggle for righteousness. Now, that's the first principle of the gospel that you've got to get. Everybody is trying to get righteousness. And what Paul says is that the only way to actually get it is the gospel. You follow me so far? Now, everybody needs it. Everybody's looking for it. Now, here's the second point of the gospel that we've got to get before we can go anywhere in this series if you just write this down. What Paul's saying here in this passage is that religion... Religion is really a cheap substitute for it, if you'd write that down. Why? Because what he's writing to the Galatians is, he's saying, look, here's the problem. He's saying, even religious people are trying to get their own righteousness. Even religious people are trying to become their own saviors. In fact, this is the heart of the confrontation with Peter. We're probably going to refer to this story a few times in this series. But notice what he says. Let's go back to it. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the what? Come on. The gospel. He says, I said to Peter in front of them all. Now here, this is interesting. Look what he says. He says, you are a what? Jew. Yet you live like a, a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. You're not religious and following the standard of Judaism or the law code that Jews had at the time. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Notice the question, how is it then that you force Gentiles to do what? Follow Jewish customs. In other words, what's Paul saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, why are you getting all religious? What's going on? And by the way, that's still true today. Christians today, depending on the denomination and depending on how it's manifest in many, many churches, most churches are trying to find a righteousness in many cases apart from Jesus. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. How do we do it? Well, by saying you have to dress a certain way. I was a part of one church. One time I was actually a pastor at a church where uh, some people called a meeting and took me before the senior pastor because I had facial hair, a beard, and they said, you can't do that. What is that? That's a desire to get righteousness on the basis of how I appear. You better wear that tie. You better follow that religious code. Or in some cases, it's Christians that reduce Christianity to nothing more than moralisms. What is, that's religion. Now, I want for you to notice something here. If you go to verse 19, he says something really powerful. If we could look at that together. 219, he says, notice, let's read this one together. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, what in the world does that mean? You got to get what he's saying here. He's saying, when I was trying to earn my own righteousness by obeying religion, or by obeying the law. When I was trying to deal with my own sense of nakedness. My own insufficiency. When, when I was trying to deal with this sense of unrighteousness. He's saying, I realized suddenly I'm not really doing it for God at all. I'm actually doing it for Paul. He says, until I stopped trying to earn my salvation, I realized I was doing it all for me. Now, do you see that? Look, no, let's read it again. He says, but for through the law, I what? I had to die to the law so that I could live for God. Let's let's just examine that. Through the law, what did I do? I died to the law. In other words, I had to die to thinking it's about living according to the law. I had to die to that thought. I had to die to trying to get my own righteousness by being good enough for God. And only then when I died to that could I start living for God. Why? Because listen to me, friend. It'll fool you every time, even if you're involved in a church. Religion is a cheap substitute. It's not what makes you actually right with God. Okay, you with me? All right, third principle of the gospel. We got to get these clear about what the gospel is. Write this down. The scripture says we are justified by our faith. We are justified by faith. Now, I'll just tell you, I said we struggle with righteousness because we're North Americans and we don't get that it's not, a, it's not a moralism, but it's a relational word. It means I'm right with someone or something. But this word justified, this is actually where the English actually helps us. Because when you justify something, what do you do? When you justify something, it's not that you change the fact of that thing, but you do change the view of that thing. Now, that's kind of confusing, I realize, Let me say it again. I want for you to get this. You're going to get it in a minute. When you justify something, you don't change the fact of it, but you do change the view of it. So, what's an example? Well, let's say that my wife and I were at home, and we tell our daughter, "Honey, you have to be home at four, and it's very important that you're home at four o'clock because we have to get get to something. And if you don't get home, we're not going to be able to get to it. But then four o'clock rolls around, and four thirty rolls around. And 4.45 rolls around, and smoke is coming out of my ears. And I'm thinking, you know, and then she walks in the door. It's 4.45, and you can bet the look she gets. I mean, if looks could kill, she is six feet under, right? Now, she knows she has trouble, so what does she do? Well, she says, she says, and, and I just want to assume with you that she's telling the truth. What does she do? She says, Mom and Dad, I wanted you to know that at 2.45, we had a fire at school. And it wasn't a fire drill. There was actually smoke in the building. I saw it, and everybody had to pile out. And she said, and we went outside, and we waited, and I shivered out there in the cold. I wasn't even able to get out of there until 3.50. Now, what's she doing in that moment? She's justifying herself, isn't she? And by the way, she's doing a pretty good job at it, isn't she? She's doing a wonderful job. Now, do you see what's happened? Listen, justification doesn't change the fact of what happened, but it does change my view of the fact of what happened. Now, that's what justification is all about. Do you see that? Listen to me. My daughter is late. It is on the record. But suddenly my view about what has happened is utterly different. Now, guys, listen to me. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. People think, well, it means that suddenly I, I, I better be this or better be that. No, no, no. It doesn't change the fact that you may be an absolute idiot you may be foolish, you may have lost it, you may be all of those things, but it does change through Jesus Christ, God's view. How? God's view has changed. Well, it leads to the fourth principle that's so important if you'd write this down. And this is what Paul is trying to teach the church, that we have been crucified with Christ. Write that down. That's an important phrase. It's a biblical phrase. We are crucified crucified with Christ if you could go to that point thank you because what does it say what does it say we are crucified with Christ Paul goes on he says I have been crucified with who again and I no longer live but who lives in me now what does that mean well look When I became a Christian and I put my faith in Christ, you have to ask, what does that mean when a person does that? I mean, here's why I say this, because if you look at the average person today who's ever walked down an aisle, if you did that at some point in church like I did, or a person who raises their hand to receive Jesus, or a person who comes forward, or maybe you have signed a card on a connection card that says, I'm committing to my life to Jesus. Most of the time when you ask somebody, what did you just do? Their response is gonna be something like, well, I I really want to ask Jesus Christ into my life. And their understanding is, so I'm going to start trying to live like Jesus. And I'm going to ask for his forgiveness, and I'm going to ask for his power to come into my life so that I can just be like him. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is, that actually is just a little bit more of a spiritual-sounding way of saying, I'm going to follow the religious code. It's a Christian way of saying, well, I'm going to follow but it's a religious way of saying or a Christian way of saying, I'm just going to come under the law. But that's not what it's saying here. Notice what it's actually saying is, I have been what with Christ? I have been crucified with Christ. I actually no longer what? I no longer live. But who lives in me? In other words, what we're told is the meaning, the, the, the moment I transfer my trust over to Jesus. God looks at the view of me and he says, it's as though I have been crucified like Christ. And it is as though I have lived the life that Jesus lived. It is as though from God's view of justification, I've lived just as perfect a life as Jesus lived. I died on the cross just like Jesus died. That's God's view of it. You know, Richard Hooker, he was an old Anglican uh, uh, pastor, uh, scholar that I loved. He said it this way. I love this quote. He said, such are we in the sight of God the Father as if we are the very Son of God himself. And I love this language. Let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. In other words, it may sound silly. It may sound dumb. It may sound crazy. But this is our comfort. This is our wisdom. God hath made himself the sin of men and that men are made the righteousness of God. What wonder, what mystery in this? My breaches of the law are his. And what does it say? Let's read it together. His obedience is mine. Now, guys, think about this with me for just a minute. How does God look on Jesus? Think about it. How his heart bursts with joy when he looks at Jesus. The brilliance of Jesus' humility. His love. His compassion. The courage of Jesus. His profound wisdom. His power. Now get this. Scripture says when you become a Christian, he looks at you the same way that he looks at Jesus. What does it say of Jesus? Peter puts it this way, he never did one thing wrong, not one thing, anything that he ever said was amiss, and he looks at you and says, you've actually never said anything wrong either. It doesn't change the fact of it, but it does change the view of it. Now, let's go on. What's he say? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Therefore, you ready? The life I live in the body, I live by what? Come on, guys. I live by what? Grace. In the Son of God who loved me and, come on, gave himself for me. That's, that's what makes Christianity Christianity. And what happens if you get this is, guys, what happens is if you actually internalize this, if you actually can trust this. Now, that's a hard thing to do because you have to put away your own ego. The moment you say it's not about what I do, it's only Jesus, God only sees Jesus, you have to put yourself away. That is the hardest thing for a human being to do. Some of you, you say you follow Jesus, but you base your entire life off what you have done or what you have not done, and you even think God curses you on the basis of what you've done and what you have not done. That's not faith. Faith is, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Period, the end. Now, what happens is when you begin to actually believe that, when you really internalize that and let that sink deeply into your heart, it actually has a transforming work within you. It's amazing what happens when you put away your religious ego. What does it do? Well, I'm going to just cover very quickly, remaining minutes, under 10 minutes. I'm going to give you the next five weeks in a nutshell. I'm going to touch every point, and uh, then we're going to spend the next uh, several weeks talking about it. Sound good? So what is the transforming work that the gospel begins to do? Number one, write this in. This gospel, when you understand it, first thing it does is it brings you into right standing with God. In other words, it brings you into righteousness. And by the way, that's what today's message is. It's about bringing you in, bringing you into a right place with God. I love this script. By the way, when I say a right place with God, let me tell you exactly what I mean. It means that when you're a believer, you're a belonger. What do you belong to? You belong to his family. Would you write that down? It means that the moment that you really transfer your trust over to him, you become a part of his family. The scripture says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Children of God. Now, I realize some of you here today, you don't feel, maybe you're watching online, you don't feel nearly worthy of that, that you're a child of God. But remember, remember what the word justify means. The word justify, it doesn't mean that you actually necessarily change the fact of something, but again, you change the view of the thing. You know, I I just want to make sure I drive this home. So let me just go back to something. I just read this the other day. This really happened. There was a teenager in his school, and he suddenly hauled off, and he slugged another kid, knocked him out flat, knocked him out cold. Crowd rushes up, as you'd guess they would. Teacher rushes up. The principal actually saw part of it. So he rushed in. The principal kind of grabs the kid and says, you're out of here. You're going to be expelled. What did the kid say? The kid looked at the principal and said, would you please look in, in his pocket? And they looked in his pocket and there was a gun. And then they looked a little closer and they saw the kid actually had a gun in the other hand. Guy said, Yeah, I slugged him. But see, he was about to shoot somebody. Now, what is justification again? You don't change the fact of it, but you do change the view of it, how it's regarded how it's treated, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross is so significant that it eclipses everything else in your life. It changes it completely how it's viewed. Guys, again, to be a Christian is to be justified. I have been crucified with Christ, he says to the Galatians. And I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I just live by faith in who? Him. See, guys, why am I driving this home? you got to get this. It is so typical in Christianity today for somebody to say, well, you know, when you become a Christian or, or ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you know what people say? They say stuff like this all the time. It's a big question. They say, well, it's when you make a promise to be really good. Or to be a Christian, it's when you really repent. I hear that one a lot. It's when you really repent. And, you know, all those things are involved. But I'm going to ask you, is that the essence of Christianity? No. Because becoming a good person is not how you become a Christian. Becoming a good person is the result. It's the evidence. It's the fruit. No, when you become a Christian, you are justified. It doesn't mean you suddenly stop being bad. Some of you in here, yeah, you're bad. But it does mean you're no longer viewed the same way. It means that sin can no longer bring you under condemnation. It means that you're accepted and you are righteous in God's sight. It brings you into the family of God. What is a Christian? Guys, listen to me. Every other, this is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. Listen to me. I'm a student of religions, and I'm telling you, every other philosophy, every other religion would say something like this. They would say, well, you're a sinner, and you're trying to be righteous. People think that's what a Christian is. Or you're righteous, and you used to be a sinner. Or some people, it's like, well, you're 30% sinner, and you're 70%, you know, Christian." or you're 50% sinner and you're 50% righteous. Every listen, every other religion says you're either a moral failure or you're loved by God, one or the other. No, no, no. Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is an honored failure. A Christian is a righteous sinner. A Christian is a justified sinner. In fact, look at what this says. Paul puts it so starkly in Romans chapter four when he says it this way, and I'm gonna drive this home. We gotta understand what the gospel is. He says, now to him who does not what? Now let's stop there again, focus on this. Now to him who what? Does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. To him it is credited as what? Righteousness. What?" To him who does not work. But trust the one who did the work. To that one, they are in right relationship with God. Do you know that Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes, the 1700s, he preached for like 12 weeks on this one verse. It was a revival in 1735. And so powerful is this scripture, it converted about a third of the entire city. Because of the power of what that's saying. He brings you in. To the family of God making you right with God that you would be called his child now what else does it do we're going to talk about this in the second week what else does the gospel do the gospel begins to build you up and into the person that he has made you to be that's what the gospel does because the same grace that saves you begins to teach you how to be like Jesus you remember the scripture we read just a moment ago about being a child of God let's look at it again if you just put that on the screen for me again real quick Again, he said, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we'd be called children of God. But notice, because we are children of God, it goes on. It says, let's read it together. Therefore, the world does not, because it did not. Why is that? It's because there's something happens when you've been born of the family of God. Children take on the likeness of their parents. There's something about sitting in the lap of the Father and relating to Jesus that begins to change a person's life. It's not following a required religious code, but it's the difference that Jesus begins to make. Why? Cuz you start to realize not only are you a part of this family, but this is part of bringing you in is he says in his word, you actually become a citizen of his kingdom. Would you write that down? You become a citizen of his kingdom. And all of a sudden, you start to realize, man, as a, as a part of his kingdom, I live in a whole different way. He's moving me in a whole different way. That's why in the scripture, by the way, the, the, the scripture always contrasts those who embrace the gospel from those who don't. Notice how Paul describes it. He talks about people, for example, who don't know the gospel. And he says, you know, they're headed for destruction. He says their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we who've embraced the gospel, what does he say? We're citizens of where? Of heaven, where the Lord Jesus lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. That is a powerful thing because because we're just citizens of his kingdom. And so it begins to have an effect, an internal, organic, natural effect on our life. Or notice when Jesus says, he talks about how differently we're supposed to live. Notice this. Jesus Jesus is um, being arrested and his disciples want to take up the sword and defend him. They want to fight human beings the way the world fights human beings. And notice what Jesus says. He says, my kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to Jewish leaders. But he says, my kingdom is what? And see, what happens is that affects the ethic of a Christian. All of a sudden, the Christian, they don't act the way the world does. By the way, that's why throughout all that we've gone through over the last year and a half, we've been saying, no, Christians act differently. We don't respond the way that the world does to to stuff. We have a different ethic. And then I'll tell you what else it does, and we're going to spend a week on this. This is going to be a great week is the gospel begins to bridge you toward all people regardless of their background Regardless of their ethnicity or their politics, suddenly you fall in love with all people. Why? Because you've become a part of something that's so much more important, so much more eternal, so much more significant than the dividing groups that are in this life. The way that we group people in this life, God says, don't you understand? In my kingdom, that's all washed away. And you've now become a part of something more important than anything in this world. Why? Because he says, here's what happens. This is the most important thing in your life. Ready? Write this down. He says, you become a member of his church. No matter who you are, no matter what your ethnic background, no matter what your political views are, no matter what your personal struggles have been, you become a member of his church. And listen to me, friends. That is the most important relational aspect of your life because scripture says you can't even be right with him without being right with his church why because his church is his body in fact he puts it this way those of you say oh i am be right with god but i don't like what the church is doing well you got a problem and you're gonna have a bigger problem in heaven because where do you think the church is going No, what's it say? It says the church is the actual body of Jesus. You can't say I'm good with Jesus, but I got a problem with your body. No, look what it says. It says the human body has many parts, but many parts make up the whole body. Now, this is fascinating. It says, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are, come on, are, and some are non-Jews. Stop right there. Don't you think it's fascinating That 2,000 years ago, he's dealing with ethnic differences and saying it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. And then he says, some of us are slaves and some of us are free. Now he's talking about workplace differences. By the way, slavery in the New Testament is not slavery as we understand it. But he's talking about hierarchy. He says, but we all have been baptized into what? One body by, and we all share that same spirit. By the way, this is why every week you'll notice in your notes a connection card. It looks like the one that is uh, up on the screen here. And uh, this is kind of a new version of it. But you'll notice that the reason why we want to know your response is because the moment that you click, I've made the decision to follow Jesus today and you make that decision, in reality, what happens is you're, again, not just a believer, you're a belonger. And it means you become a part of his church. And so it's like, man, I want to belong. I want to belong to the church. And that's what membership, by the way, is all about. And that's why we encourage it so frequently. And so this is why, like in June again, we start, we begin to talk to you about our core classes and getting you involved. Because our goal is that you would grow in relationship, in rightness with Jesus. You'd grow in your understanding of that. He's made you right. But you'd begin to grow in every way and understand. That's why we encourage small groups. And getting involved in those, it's why we encourage meetup groups. Why, why are we constantly encouraging these things? Or I was, I'm looking over at my friend over here, Linda, I just adore you. That uh, We have Tuesday early morning prayer, don't we? It's why we encourage prayer groups. And by the way, guys, I just found out, check this out, this is the coolest thing. Since we did our 40 days of prayer last fall, we have now Monday morning women's prayer, Tuesday morning co-ed prayer, Wednesday morning men's prayer, Thursday morning co-ed prayer. It's like every day of the week. We've got prayer groups going on, calling on the name of Jesus with people. Isn't that amazing? It's awesome. It's a cool thing. Why? Because people are saying, that's right, that's something you should clap for. You're the only one following the Lord right now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Because, man, there are people that are just saying First and foremost, start of my day, man, I just want to be right with God, and I want to do it in the company of the church, because we belong to one another. Now, here's the fourth thing we're going to focus on. It burdens you for the struggles of others. That's what the gospel begins to do. Why? Because all of a sudden, through the gospel, you realize how broken you are. You start to feel broken for others. Notice, Corinthians goes on. It says, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. And so what happens in your life is you begin to say, God, I want to love people the way that you love people. And what happens is, write this down, you become an instrument for his service. Because that's the gospel working its way out of your life. As you say, God, I want to be used to love people like you do. Because you're my daddy, and I want to follow my dad's example. And the final thing, and this is the thing we're going to cover in this last week, is that it begins to, the gospel itself, as you really trust it, begins to break you from the patterns of behavior that wage war on your soul and that threaten to slide you back into corruption. See, this is why the Apostle Paul, this is why the Apostle Paul, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God because there's something about the gospel that begins to work with inside you to change you and break you from habits that dog your life as you really trust Jesus. Minister to him and allow him to minister to you. So just write this last point down and then I'll pray. You become a new creation made in his likeness and after his image. Bearing the likeness as a family member. I hope you know that today. Can I lead us in prayer? Father, I pray for every person that is uh, watching or listening or involved in this message today just asking that you would reveal to them the truth of the gospel. That they would trust you, not trust in religion or not trust in their works or not trust in their own striving to gain rightness through what they acquire or what they do. But, Lord, they'd simply say, Jesus, I trust you and no other. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ, I stand on you. Lord, help us, God, to do that. We need you, Jesus. Would you just pray this prayer with me wherever you are? Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. Help me to trust you. You and no other. Bring me into your family. Make me right with you. What you did on the cross is enough for me. I have died to my old life. I live a new life after you. In Jesus' name, amen.